are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everyone, welcome to the brand new episode of the Jersey Guys podcast. I'm Mark Ballow and I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne. Yes, sir. So uh, today we have a special guest, Jamie Kramer. Uh, Jamie's the original guitarist with the Christian hard rock band Holy Soldier. Uh, Jamie formed the band along with bassist Andy Robbins in 1985. Uh, they eventually uh, recorded two albums with, uh, with Jamie on guitar, uh, that being 1990's self-titled album, Holy Soldier, and 1992's uh, Last Train. Uh, Jamie left the band after that, but we're going to talk to Jamie about you know the formation of the band in 1985, uh, go up through those first two albums, touch a little bit on that third album, even though he didn't play on it, and um, you know we're going to get an update on what he's doing today. And uh, So let's get right to this interview with uh, Jamie Kramer from Holy Soldier. Um, Jamie, welcome to the uh, Jersey Guys podcast. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Great. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, I'll start, and I'll. Uh, I know Tom's got a bunch of stuff to go on the two albums that that you played on, and and the history of the band. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of talk about uh, if you could talk about the early days of Holy Soldier. Um, you know, when the band formed, um, nineteen eighty five, I guess it was, and just you know that in the whole initial uh, period of the band. Yeah, for sure. Um, so 1985-ish, um, Robbie, Robbie, uh, Robbie Wolf, he goes by now, um, him and I went to high school together. And then we kind of parted ways for, for a couple of years. And then we kind of reconnected and he introduced me to Andy. And we, uh, we started jamming together and we decided to kind of put something together. And we got a couple other guys, uh, um, Pete Kearney, drummer, and then Larry Farkas, who was in Vengeance. Um, was the original other guitar player and we started rehearsing in a place in Long Beach, California and uh, just kind of writing and, and, and practicing and we started clubbing and I think one of our first dates was like the Brenn Event Center in Brea and I can't remember who we would played with but it's a, a small theater and it was, it was really fun and, and being a kid from Orange County, California you know, Huntington Beach area, um, you know, I, I had played a lot of backyard party bands and um, it was actually pretty prolific in the early mid 80s because, um, you know, somebody gets a bunch of kegs and, and charges a couple bucks at the door and they have a band and you just fill a backyard with 200 people. And um, we got we got pretty popular. And so after doing that for a while, I just kind of burned out on that whole scene and it just was going nowhere. And um so Holy Soldier was my first introduction to actually playing L.A. clubs when we started doing that. I, I had not played L.A. clubs. So, so yeah, we started jamming and, and uh, we went through a couple of incarnations of members. Um, Larry left. We got Michael Cutting um, joined the band. And then we were at the Wonders Club in San Pedro, California, and saw a band. And I can't remember Terry's little band's name at the moment, but um, we saw Terry. And he had this big double kick set. And he was doing a drum solo with wiffle ball bats. And we're like, we're stealing that guy. So... <laughs> We did. We stole them. And uh, that, that was the, the original lineup of Holy Soldier. And then we started clubbing in Hollywood in the heyday. And uh, back then it was a, a pay to play scenario. So how that worked was promoters would you wanted to play. They would sell they would sell you X amount of pre-sale tickets and you had to pay them. You had to buy the tickets and it was up to you to sell them. If you didn't sell them, you ate it. Right. So we. Uh, we had a pretty good support group that would go around and, and we were passing out flyers on the sunset strip and um, we're, we were able to get through the tickets pretty, pretty quickly. And, and it wasn't very long before we were going back to promoters to buy more tickets and they, they're like, you what? And ne next thing, you know, um, after a period of time of doing that, we didn't have to buy tickets anymore because we were a guaranteed draw. And then, and then pretty quickly after that, we started headlining the shows and then, it just kind of snowballed. It was, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. You know I mean? We were all clubbing at the same time with Guns, uh, Guns N' Roses and Warrant and, 
um, you know, Bang Tango and, you know, all those bands from those days, you know, we were all doing the same thing together. And, uh, you know, back then you didn't have social media. Yeah. Um, so you had to hand somebody a piece of paper with your oh, face yeah. on it saying, saying you're playing right so yeah. there was, well, that a, was lot, a huge a thing yeah with the with the la you know all the bands on sunset strip right the flyering everywhere yeah i mean uh, any given friday saturday from from the whiskey a go-go to gazaris was just shoulder to shoulder people just mingling around walking so it was a really good uh vehicle to get out there and get your your name out there and then um it just kind of took off we started selling out um i think we had some records at gazari's as far as breaking attendance records and um it just kind of took off on its own and then um so that, that was a really good time and and you know when you're in it you don't realize you're you're in a period of time that's going to be looked back upon you know as a you know a decade of you know musical you know history or something you don't realize it because you're just in it and you're doing it and you're you're having fun but yeah, it was it was really fun, and and we we kind of progressed pretty quickly, and then we had a hiccup. Robbie left the band, and we went on a national search for a singer. So, um, funny story. Um, Janie Lane from Warrant was in a band called Plain Jane in in L.A. So, he was playing at the Troubadour, and we had a mutual friend, and we you know we were looking for a singer, and he was looking to do something else. So. I went down and watched him at the Troubadour. And so him and I talked and, and he agreed to come by our studio um, and, and, you know, kind of check it out. So he comes by and we ripped through a set and uh, we had a warehouse in Gardena, California. So it was, it was, we had the full stage with the ramps and the whole thing set up and he came out and it would, he was really cool. It was just, you know, he, it wasn't what he wanted to do. Cause if you listen to our music, I mean, I know we get labeled as a glam LA band. We, we weren't, our music was not glam. No, no, no. Yeah, and uh, I know we get labeled like that a lot, but Janie clearly wanted to take a different direction. Like, you know, he was kind of wanting to do the poison type thing. And, and in fact, there's shows in the clubs in L.A. were very, very much like what Poison was doing with the girls on the stage and everything. So it wasn't really what he wanted to do. And we, you know, we, I understood and, and it was cool. And then he, uh, Warrant was looking for a singer at the time. And so he hooked up with those guys. And, and you know, we all know what happened after that. Yeah. So. So again, here we are looking for a singer. Janie didn't work out. It wasn't going to work. So we're looking, we're auditioning. And I can tell you right now, that's one of the most painful, painful things you can go through is trying to audition and find a singer. And I mean, some bands maybe get really lucky <laughs> finding the right guy, but uh, it was tough. You know, I mean, most of the bands in Hollywood in the day, you know, they, they had their lineups all set up. So yeah, it was it was super interesting. And then you somebody'd show up wearing a wig but had a good voice and you're like, I don't I don't I don't I don't think it's gonna work. And yeah. um, you know, because really at the end of the day, it's more than just having a voice. You got you kind of have to you have to connect with the other guys, right? Sure. It's like any relationship. It's like any relationship. So, you know, you gotta kind of feel it. And then, you know, back then image was very important. So that was a piece of it. And and you just gotta kind of bring it. And it was really tough. So long story short. Um, we get this demo tape from Memphis, Tennessee, and it was Stephen um, who had uh, recorded a few songs with his brother, Sean. And so we played it and it was very different. And, you know, his voice was just kind of unique. It wasn't the typical L.A. sound. And so we we thought, well, this this might be something cool. So we flew him out and we kind of hung out for a few days and and jammed and and he kind of shared some of his ideas and we decided to give it a shot so um he drove out um like i said we had a warehouse that had like an apartment built into it so he he, he lived there with a few of us and, and we just started working on the stuff so that little hiatus we had um in the hollywood clubs at the time looking for a singer was over and we started hitting the clubs again with this with the new singer and the new new reincarnation so and then it, we just picked up where we left off. We just were selling out everywhere and got a lot of record company attention. So we had done a couple demos. Um, our manager, Darren Hinton at the time, um, you know, got us in the studio and we recorded, I think, three songs. And it's kind of funny now because when you, you look back on that kind of stuff, it's, it's a little painful, but um, well, some people like it, you I, know? And it's, I, Yeah. Well, I mean, Tom and I were just talking about this before we went on, um, you know, 
I I just actually came across the that you guys actually had two demos prior to the the debut album coming out. Uh, the first one was with your original singer. It was a three three track demo, right? And then uh, yeah, I guess you did another one a couple years later, um, and that I guess had Stephen was in the fold at that point. Yes, yes. And then we did a. I think I don't remember how many songs we did with him. Um, and it's really funny too because I, I think some of that didn't even make the uh, the first record. So I think we took pieces of those songs and kind of hacked them up. Um, and as a band, we we always wrote um, the collaboration piece is what made Holy Soldier sound like it did, right? So you know, if I bring um, like the 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 intro hook for See No Evil, you know, that was something I wrote, and it was another song at one point, and so we took that and then the turnaround we we kind of added a different turnaround to it and then kind of built the verse and and uh you know that intro riff was the one to be in the chorus and and so i've I've never been the type of songwriter that just you know i put something together and it this is it you know my ego is not that big to to where i think i'm such an amazing songwriter i i think i'm a i think i'm a good songwriter when i work with other people um and i i collaborate and i'm very honest with myself about that but I, Holy Soldier was about that. There was no egos. Um, we all worked together. Nobody was trying to shine over anybody else. And, and we, we kind of kept everybody and each other in check. And, and that, that's why it worked so well. But yeah, so some of those demo songs, uh, I'm trying to remember um, which ones and which parts of those demo songs wound up being some of the hooks on the record. But we just kind of attacked it um, in pre-production as just we're going to just grind through this and, and it, we're going to make the magic happen. And that's kind of what happened. And we did the second album the exact same way. We just, um, we came in, um, we, we stayed at David Zafiro's place in, in Seattle when he was up there at the time on the second record. And, and we just locked ourselves in a room for 10 hours a day and, and drank coffee and, and just crushed the ideas all day and, and hammered it out. And then, you know, you, you recorded on a four track and then the next day you listen to it and you're like, nah, I hate this part. And it was just part is just the process. And, and uh, that, that's pretty much how we attacked it. And it, it, it works, I think, for, for what we were doing. Jamie, I wanted to talk about David Zafiro a little bit. How did you guys get uh, hooked up with him? So when we signed with A&M Records, um, we, we finally hammered out our deal with A&M and then Word Records was the Christian distribution part of that. And so um, Mark Maxwell at Word hooked us up um, and suggested David. So we had heard his his solo record and we listened to it and we just really thought he had a really interesting take on melody and, and song structure. Um, Dave, Dave's very melodic. So um, we met with him. And, you know, he went over our demo and, and, and Dave's very much a perfectionist. Uh, and so he, he, he liked what we were doing, but I think he could see past that to see what it could be. And so I think that's why it worked. And, and, and we, we just decided, I think this is a good fit. And to this day, you know, we always called him the sixth member of the band. Now, when you, know. when you were describing uh, your days back in the L.A. club scene, were you guys already known as Holy Soldier or were you going by a different oh, yeah. name? No. Yeah. From day one, uh, we were Holy Soldier. Yeah, we 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 came up with the name and, it, you know, we had a couple other ideas in the name. And, and actually, Robbie, our first singer, came up with it. And I wasn't super fond of the name um, at the time. And it kind of grew on me a little bit. But there was there was a couple other names we were kicking around. I think Ra Raging Angels or something was another one. And uh, but yeah, no, Holy Soldier, it it just it stuck. And um, it was really interesting because in the LA club scene, I mean, we had a large, large, large secular draw um, because people, when they come see you live, they're not really listening to all the lyrics, and they like the sound, they like the music, they like the look, and it just you know. They they hear maybe by the time we get a record out they hear what you're about and then you know it, it, it goes from there but um, yeah the, the 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 lyrical piece was kind of a non-issue in in the club days but yeah the name name was uh, from day one yeah so now you guys you talked about the the you know uh, obviously Holy Soldiers a Christian band uh, then you have you know you guys were involved in the whole secular scene was there was there actually like any type of like a, a Christian music scene that you guys were part of or was it just always kind of like you said that secular thing where you just played with with other bands and didn't have to necessarily be a Christian band so we were we were always a Christian band I mean there's other Christian bands that 
really approached it differently that, you know, the four Bibles from the stage and stuff. We just wanted to let the music kind of do it. Um, you know, and then, and Hey, you know what, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a need for each thing. Like, you know, you talk about like your body, you have, you have a hand, you have a foot, they have two different purposes, but they're all part of the same thing. So, you know, when you have a, a Christian band that's trying to get into the secular clubs and, or playing a secular club and they want to have a break in the middle and have a, a sermon or, or, or an altar call, you know, that's cool, you know, but I'm, I'm going to say a lot of those bands are probably drawing more of a Christian audience. Yeah. And then does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so, no, totally. well, so in other words, you, you guys know, were not really like as overt with it as say like a, a, a Petra, for instance, or a band like, ex- like that. Exactly. I mean, we, we were, we were very strong in our faith. And I mean, we even had a Wednesday night Bible study that we, we did just for us and, and kids would uh, get word of it and, and want to come. And it got so big, we had to give it to a church because we just could. And then we started recording and touring. We just couldn't do it anymore. So there was no compromise with us internally, but we just had a vision for what we wanted it to be. And, and, and at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to change somebody's mind, right? You're you, you standing on a street corner telling somebody, you know, that they're going to go to hell if they don't change their ways, you're going to turn them off. Yeah. So just by, just by being an example and just, you know, being loving and understanding, I think you, you, you draw more people. And, and so we just wanted to let the music do what it was supposed to do. And um, I'm going to tell you, it, it was very humbling when, you know, I got off stage and we played Red Rocks in Denver and we opened for Petra. It was a sold out show. It was one of the biggest shows we've ever done. It was awesome. And I get off stage and I was the guy that always wanted to towel off and go meet people. Cause again, a surfer kid from Huntington beach, I, I was always humbled by mm. people coming to see me play. Right. So I mm. wanted to go meet him. And, and this kid comes up and he was telling me he was, he, he was going to commit suicide and somebody gave him our record. And, you know, he was in his room listening to the record and the lyrics really spoke to him and it turned his life around, you know? So wow. that wasn't me that, that I, I can take zero credit for that. That was, that was not me. I, I was the vehicle and that's all I can say about it. But that's the vision we had was the music was going to do it. And um, I spoke with somebody yesterday from Norway. They, they said they, they're not a believer. And, and they said, your music speaks to me. You know, and they, they take they take it a different way, like, you know, the pain inside of me. Yeah. Um, and that song that song lies. He said, I had an ex-girlfriend that is that song lies, you know. So everybody's going to interpret it their way. But at the end of the day, it it's it's not me that can change somebody's heart. Right. So I, I we just we just wanted to approach it that way. And, and so, yeah, you know, we we did a lot of secular gigs. We did some Christian concerts. Um, with other Christian bands, but that wasn't our vision. You know, we were, we didn't want to be, um, you know, limited to playing church gigs and, and um, Christian festivals. We, we decided right. that we wanted to get out and, and it worked. I and mean, we had ICM booking on that first tour. Um, we, we were actually booked with YNT for the YNT tour. And then Dave Medicati broke his, uh, broke his arm or his leg or something and um, had to cancel the tour. And that was crushing because oh, we were wow. looking forward to it. And then we hooked up with uh, Extreme and, and um, Allison Chains, and, and we played the Cat Club there in New York City with them. And uh, that was supposed to be a whole tour. And then uh, there were some date conflicts, so we wound up just doing the one show with those guys in, in, in New York. But uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that was our vision. Tom was a uh, Tom was a guy, a Cat Club guy. <laughs> you know, since I've been doing these podcasts for a last year, I always pride at myself on how many great shows I saw at the Cat Club in New York City. And the more I interview people, the more I find out of bands that I love that I missed. <laughs> and I never oh. realized you guys played there. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, Allison Chains, Extreme, and then we were the third on the wow. bill. Yeah. And that was on the first record or the second record? That was on the first record. Interesting. Yeah, that was okay. on the first record. Yeah, and, and there were supposed to be more dates together, and like I said, there was some some scheduling conflicts, but it was kind of fun because when you're on tour, and you know the three tour buses were out in front, and you know, well, you guys know New York, right? Yeah. I, I can't believe the driver got that bus around that town, uh-huh. and then so we're out we're out in front of the club, and and it's kind of fun because everybody wants to see each other's bus. So Gary Sharon was in our bus, and it, you know each bus is a little different, and uh, 
you know, hanging out with Nuno at Soundcheck and him and I were sitting at a table with our guitars and shooting the breeze. And, you know, back then you don't know, they weren't that big. We all just came out. Allison Chains, Dirt, they just came out. In fact, um, their sound guy gave, gave me their CD and we were playing it in the bus. And we liked it so much, we started playing uh, Man in the Box for Soundcheck. So, um, yeah, it's just it was a really good time. It was a really, uh, really fun time in our career. And, uh, you know, the second tour um, was was a little bit different than that because we didn't have A&M. Um, but it was it was also a fun tour. But, you know, you, when they book your tour, they have to book you with all your big shows where your airplay is heavy. And then you have to fill in the dates in between. So right. one day you might be playing Red Rocks and the next day you're playing Bob's Bowling Alley, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. so, which is, which is cool because you're playing, you know, but. Well, you mentioned yeah, Alice in Chains. That was at a period of time when we were kind of led to believe that uh, grunge before it was called grunge could survive at the same time as traditional hard rock metal. And it turned out that uh, it didn't, unfortunately. But I remember right. when all those bands came out, like in 89 and 90, and, and people that were into metal, like myself, we were very well receiving of it, not not knowing that it was going to be like a, a phenomenon that, you know, changed really yeah. what we loved the most to, to be exited out. But we could talk about that a little bit later. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about the, the Christian scene. There was always a stigma back in the day because I was like uh, very into I, I was into Striper from, you know, when they first came out. So like that opened the gate to hundreds of Christians bands for me from stuff like Dagamo and Key all the way up to Recon and uh, Neon Cross and everything in between. There was always a stigma of it at the time. Are these guys for real? There were, there were We used to think that, you know, some guys are really Christians some guys put it on to get a deal or to attract more fans. Was that something that was out there? And I'm not asking you to name, you know, bands or artists, but was that, was it a scene that did have bands that were really legit and some guys that kind of, well, you know, might be a good way to sell records. I, I'm going to be honest. I personally didn't see that. And I'm going to say, if you're going to try to label yourself as a Christian band to gain more, career notoriety you're 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 fooling yourself so it's a bad strategy it is it actually is and and you know uh you know people have told me that you know if you guys weren't a christian band you would have been bigger i i disagree because that wasn't the issue with us the issue was you just brought up a really good point i think it was timing you know our first record came out in 90 and that was right when everything was turning right it was right there. Towards the, it was right yeah, there. It was right, yeah. That was the mark. Had our first record come out, come out in like 1988, right. um, we would have been bigger and had more videos on MTV and, and you know, the whole thing. And, you know, I, I just, I'm a firm believer at the end of the day, it happened the way it was supposed to, you know, um, I, and I don't have any, any regrets. Uh, but um, there's, there are some other things that, that kind of, and we can talk about that in a minute, but um as far as the Christian band thing, I, I, I didn't see that personally where guys were just putting on a show because they thought they were going to draw more or, or sell more records because it's really counterintuitive. If you're going to do that, you, if you're going to do that, you need to kind of be committed to, to why you're playing music. And, and for me, like I had mentioned in the party band I was in, um, I just saw people circling the drain. I mean, you know, doing cocaine and mm -hmm. girls hanging out with the band that were, you know, CPAs or, secretaries and nice girls and, and after about three or four months they're not that anymore they're, right you know they're doing whatever they need to do to get cocaine and and i i was actually disgusted with it all i woke up one saturday morning hungover and i'm 19 years old and i i, I just I, I didn't know which way i was going and i called robbie so my first singer that we went to high school together, I was mentioning, he um, he quit the band we were in because he went to Calvary Chapel. And I didn't understand why you have to quit the band because you went to Calvary Chapel. So um, two years later, this day I'm talking about on that Saturday morning, I called him and it was his birthday. And he goes, man, man, I've been really praying for you. I, you know, and then and I'm like, I don't know why I'm calling you, Rob, but I just thought I'd say hi. And he's like, hey, can I can I bring you somewhere? I want to take you somewhere. And he took me to this church. Um, that was all musicians. Um, Steve Valdez was the pastor. He had long hair and it was just a place of acceptance and being raised Catholic. Um, I'd never seen that, you know, it was always about 
penance and, and you know god had a big hammer and you know you, you can never be good enough and and so that 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 was the draw for me and then i realized i can play my music and do my music for good and make a difference and um that that's what motivated motivated me to to you know be in a christian rock band um i think the strategy we we did with not being like to your point so over at the shows um i think was a strategy um because like at the end of the day if, if people like your music and buy your records they're going to hear the lyrics and 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 you know they're going to be touched that way but yeah i think it's a bad strategy uh to <laughs> to use that as it a, was something a, that was out there because i i mean you know i go back far enough to when there wasn't even a christian hard rock or metal scene and it was yeah. something i remember there was always talk amongst people like are these guys on the up and up with this you know and I, then you'd hear like somebody yeah. tell you a story and say well these guys definitely are but you know these guys aren't and well i think people yeah. even uh, accused you know uh, striper got accused of that right are are they is it an act you know um back in the yeah. day you know so it's i think oh. that was out there yeah oh let me tell you um Michael Sweet and I were watching a band one time in Orange County. We were hanging out and um, we're, I forgot what band we were there. Any, him and I were standing there and we had Diet Cokes in our hand with on ice, right? Mm -hmm. And this girl walks up and she walks right up to Michael and puts her nose in his drink and sniffs his drink. <laughs> and we looked at her and she goes, I just wanted to see if you guys were for real. Interesting. So to, to your point, yes, but is, you know, is it a sin to relax and have a beer? It's not. But no, it, absolutely not. You know, I, I'm probably going to hell if it is. But um, I'm, ju I'm just kidding. But anyway, uh, that's the perception. That's the perception piece. So you actually have a responsibility if you're doing that and you're going to carry that moniker that you, you have to be responsible. I'm, I'm not going to make some 15-year-old kid feel like I'm, I'm a hypocrite or I'm, I'm fake, right? So you have to be, you have to be responsible with that um when when you're out and about but does it mean you're fake no um were there bands that maybe were just riding the wave and and were not living the life i i i'm sure that's possible i i didn't see it myself but you know that's between them and god but well when we uh, when we when we wrap up and we go off the air we'll we'll talk for five minutes and i'll tell you why i asked this question but <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I, I can't expound on it on the air, but I, I did. But, but you I, know, like I said, I said perception, right? So they right. see us, they see, you know, the tight pants and, you know, you know, we're goofing off and having fun, you know, backstage or, you know, at the bus or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you don't you don't look like an altar boy, right? You don't look like. Right. Uh so people could easily think you're, you're, you're not what you say you are. Right. And you I know? think that that did probably have a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I sure. um, wanted to kind of make a U-turn back to the music and uh, the first album. How did this album do for you guys? I, I know when it came out, it, it got a, a lot of a lot of buzz all over the place. What, did it sell up to your expectations? Could you tell us a little bit about the, the whole experience of touring it and how the sales went on it? Yeah, it, uh, it did, actually. Um, it, I, I'm trying to remember what it shipped. Um, I want to say... We quickly got to the 25,000 mark, and um, I just remember walking into a warehouse records and seeing a cardboard display with our mugs on it, and, you know, I was like, holy moly, this is crazy. So uh, it did really well. Um, I think it exceeded a lot of expectations, and I don't have hard and fast numbers, but I want to say, if I remember correctly, and I wish Andy was here because he's the numbers guy, but... Um, I want to say it was a couple hundred thousand, two fifty thousand, something like that. Wow! So, and that was over—that's total sales over, you know, a, a long period of time. It wasn't like right out of the gate, but um, yeah, it did—it did really well. It did did really well. So we had a fair amount of airplay um, in some major cities. So, you know, you, you go into say Corpus Christi, and we we played a pretty big, bigger uh, theater there. I want to say five thousand seater. Um, pretty much filled it up and then and then you know some cities you didn't get a lot of airplay and then japan it, it went over really well so we did a tour over there so it was uh it it, it did it did better than I, I kind of expected for the first time out so what what led to the breakup of uh, a&m records was it more like a, the just the shifting of the musical climate yeah so that's a really great question um so there was a i want to say hostile takeover or corporate merger with Polygram, 
which we didn't know about when we were signing our deal because we had taken several months. Our attorney worked really hard to get us 50% of our publishing on that first record, which is unheard of um, because the three ways to be paid is mechanical publishing and songwriting. And the publishing is a big deal. So a record company might say, hey, Tom, I'm going to sign your band, but we want all your publishing for your first two records. You're like, yeah, all right. No mm. problem. Well, you go you go platinum twice and they, they, they own the publishing on that music. Yeah, and you just show. yeah, you just signed away truckloads of money, right? So um the publishing's a big deal. So we got fifty percent with AM on on the first record with a second album option. So the second record was an option. So with that said, Steven had left the band uh prior to the tour um for personal reasons. So we're playing the palace in hollywood sold out i think love and rockets was opening up for us and um this guy shows up backstage and he was from a&m but it wasn't our a&r guy and he introduced himself we you know sort of like what's going on he's like oh well you know your guy left the company um you know poly and we just found about polygram merger and um and then and then the bomb drop he goes where's your singer steven (laughs) well, uh, and that was when Eric Eric Wayne, who sang on Promise Man, he he did that first tour with us, and he did a fantastic job. Um, Eric was great. So I think that was part of the driving force for them not to pick up the second record because the the guy that they signed uh, that was on the album is not in the band anymore. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, you about know, that, you know, because that's the whole timeline. So so actually, when the the album came out, you guys did you even do any shows with Stephen for that album or? That was it. So we did. Yeah, we did. We did some shows. We did a Western um, United States tour with Steven and, um, you know, all the L.A. dates. But when it came time to kick off the the national tour, the world tour, um, he had left. And and then that's when Eric got in there. And, and uh, like I said, he, he killed it and he was good every night live. So we were going to move forward and use Eric on the second record. And then we're approached us and uh steven wanted to come back and do last train so um you know you, you want to use the singer you're known for right so so we said okay and uh steven joined the band back up and we started pre-production on last train but the, the record company the AM deal i think had a lot to do and, and i could be speculating but because i don't think it was ever said but i my very strong opinion is that's what we drove that is partially because Steve wasn't there and um, it was the second record was an option and there was a lot of turmoil going on with AM at the time with the, the merger. Kind of gave them an excuse to get rid of you. Sounded exactly. Like, yeah. Which I've been I've been asked before why why would they do that with such good out of the box numbers and I don't have the answer to that. Well, also you I mean talking it's it's now what close to 1992 probably at that point and as much as we said earlier 1990 was kind of like the the kickoff point of the the music climate changing not by 90 91 92 it was even further you know that way yeah so i wanted to talk yep. a little bit about the second album the recording of it the the writing it's a kind of a different album from the first one i i i like both of them a lot i don't rated quite as high as the first album but it's a it's a very strong album how did the writing process go with that and if you could tell us a little bit about the making of the second record sure so you can kind of tell the guitar uh dynamic is a little bit different because michael had left right before last train um for personal reasons and um we got hooked up with scott soderstrom and scott and i connected really well because you know as as a two guitar player band you got to get along with the other guitar player right He's got a little bit different style. Actually, his style always kind of reminded me a little Skid Rowish, you know, the way he writes and plays and and uh, like Virtue and Vice, like you know, that's kind of his riff. And so Scott joins the band and Steve's back, and we decided to head up to Seattle to Dave Spiro's place to start pre-production. So the writing process was very similar to the first record, except except for we didn't come to the table with you know, partial songs already written like we did on the first record. Um, so we just started just, you know, working and, you know, many hours a day, just throwing ideas out there and then constructing ideas into songs and then reworking those ideas. And, you know, it was a complete collaboration effort. 
and and it's really it's really hard to explain. And when I when I always kind of explain it to people, that's when the magic happens. That's the best way I can put it. Because there's no for there's no formula, really. It's just you start you start being inspired, and then somebody might play something that inspires you, and then, you know, that's like what I mentioned earlier. I'm not. Uh, there's no way I I I am you know that big headed to think I can write these amazing entire songs by myself because I have I think I bring good ideas, but. I, you know, when we bounce them off each other, it, you, it inspires the other guy to come up with something. And that's where the collaboration happens. So that's that's how Last Train was written. And then, uh, you know, the recording process was very similar to the first record. How did the sales go on this album? Was it, I, I'm guessing, lower than the predecessor? Um, it did well, too. We won a Dove Award for the first record. Um, and um, uh, we... Definitely had some um, Dove Award nom nominations for the second album. And in fact, I'm, if I'm trying to remember correctly, because I have something on my wall that says we did, um, I think we got a Dove Award for Last Train as well. So um, you're right. The, the vibe of that record was very different from the first. I think I think the spirit of the band was captured in that record, um, but it was just a little bit different direction. Um, like, you know, you got, uh, you know, Virtue and Vice and, and you know, that's kind of a cool jam and um last train um i think is is one of my favorite songs on that record really it's just got a cool vibe and and i like i dig the solo i did in that song and it just it all just kind of grooved and felt really good so um it's a fun song to play live what um for, for basically the, the the two albums the first two albums you had david zafiro who tom mentioned earlier uh from blood good the guitar player what was it like for you as a guitar player having your producer on those first two albums be a guitar player himself fantastic question so david is a very very accomplished guitar player and songwriter and he's very good with melody so there's some level of pressure I mean, you know, we were very good friends. We're still very good friends to this day. In fact, I got to see him last weekend when he was in town. Um, but you're sitting in a control room with a big mixing board in front of you across from your producer with your guitar. And, you know, I, you know, all my solos were written ahead of time. You know, I'd work them all up. So I'm ready to go when I get in the studio. And David was, David was very gracious, but he's a perfectionist. So he would tell you he you, re, you really loved what you did, um, but you got a better one in there. And mm. you just blew this solo and you're like, yeah, you're ready to drop the mic and, you know, <laughs> put your hands in the air. And he's like, yeah, Jamie, I think I think there's a better one. And and then you you nail another one. And then he's like, well, I like the second part of that one better than the first <laughs> one. And then by solo number six, you're starting to get a little frustrated now. Right. Because. Now you're starting to not feel it anymore because now you're just feeling pressure. And and David's just, you know, kind of eating popcorn watching the show. And then you get done with the seventh one and he goes, yep, I really like the second one. <laughs> and you're, you're like, man, you son of a gun. So uh, but he, he that's his job. He wants to get the best out of you. And then he, he keeps you going to see if some sort of magical thing is going to happen and and so maybe he'll punch in the second half of the solo because it's better than you know what i'm saying so um yeah so yeah it was it was a lot of pressure a little intimidating even though we were friends and we had you know been working together for quite some time on pre-production but he, he just had really good ideas like you know he was very cool about suggesting things you know it was never he never approached it from you know a position of uh, authority or ego or anything like that. It was just, you know, in a very cool way would maybe suggest, you know, something. And then, you know, it opens up your, your mind to think, oh, okay, well maybe I'll do this. And, um, it was cool. It was, it was really, and to this day, you know, I, I'm looking forward to working with Dave on, on something I got going on. So it, 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 it winds up being good in the end, even though in the moment you're like, dang it this guy's really good player he's just like trying to play in front of him yeah was he was david actually in into production at that point or, or was that like the first thing he did production wise with you guys you know what that's a really good question i think he had done some other things but i think this was the the the, the big thing okay. the, the first big thing he was, was he out of blood good at that point or he was still in the band yes he was out of the band at that that's, point. that's what i thought yeah 
So now we move to the third record, which uh, as being a fan of the band from day one, I, I had always uh, wondered about the upheaval and not only the lineup, but the uh, direction. Um, mm -hmm. You're out. Uh, Stephen Patrick's out. Uh, Cutting is back in the band. And right. um, it's, it's flannel shirts and combat boots at this point. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so um i had left which was the hardest thing i i had probably done um you know i was in that band at 19 years old and andy and i you know pounding the pavement passing out flyers all you know all the mystery and work to get it to where we got it um after that second tour you know financially it's just it's very hard and you're working construction or whatever you have to do in between touring and recording and after that second album, kind of seeing the turn and where music was going and, and uh, you know, I, I had an opportunity for a career. Um, you know, I worked for Union Pacific Railroad here in Southern California. And I decided that I was going to take a break from that for a while and pursue a career, which I'm 30 years in now and I'm retiring in two years. So, Small um, man. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you. Um, and I have no regrets because I have a, a, a really great, scrapbook and memory and i get to do things like this and talk to you guys and i'm still playing music and music is still a big part of my life so i lost nothing really um you know that when when i left it was it was very hard i actually didn't touch my guitar for probably 10 years and that was such a big piece of me um i just had to step back and it, it was it was very difficult and um it was hard on andy too because you know he was 16 i was 19 i think when we started the band and, and uh you know it was, it was it was very difficult so um they bounced back and michael came back and and they went in and worked on promise man and i like that record i mean i don't like the whole record honestly and i i made it very you know i'm very transparent andy knows michael knows but i think there's some really good songs on there and uh i think trying for a band to try to stay relevant is super important i mean unless you're acdc you can just always sound like acdc right um, and pe people will love you and buy your records because you're ACDC. But um, trying to stay relevant, and I, it, it's very difficult to do, and I think they did a good job at, at Promise Man because um, I think for that time frame, it is a relevant album. And, you know, as a songwriter, you can get stuck in a rut with how you write, but um, I've, I've listened to interviews with some really good songwriters, and, and their, their secret is they listen to music of the day, right? They get into bands that are relevant in, in, in this time and they get influenced. And that's how you write and stay relevant. And I think that's what they did for Promise Man. So um, good job on that one. I, I think they won a double award for that album as well. They did. They actually got a lot of exposure on that. Back in the day, I used to have a, a satellite dish and I used to pull in this Christian station. I forget the guy who had this show. It was sponsored by the uh, Heaven's Metal magazine. And mm -hmm. they really pumped this album up a lot. It got a lot of advertisement. It got a lot of exposure. And I actually liked it. I bought it when it came out. I, and I kind of have the same feelings you do. There were some songs that I really liked a lot. I thought there were, you know, a couple that I didn't particularly like. But overall, I thought it was, a, for what it was, I thought it was, a, it was a good record. Yeah, I agree. So now we move on to a period of time when there was some type of a... Uh, albeit, I guess, kind of short reformation uh, of of the band. If you could tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so 2005, there was a promoter that wanted to get us together to do some shows. And the first show was in Anaheim, California. So funny story. I, you know, I obviously kept some of my guitars, but I had a lot of stage gear that I no longer needed you know, for all those years. And I had, I had a storage unit full of stacks of amps and, and cabinets and my rack mount with my amps in it and my gear and all this stuff that I was never planning on using again. So um, here comes this reunion show. So I got to come out and start buying gear. So I had my guitars, but um, other than a little practice amp, I didn't have anything I'd use on stage. So I've got, you know, bought another Marshall. I got a Marshall half stack, started buying pedals. And uh, started practicing my butt off. And it's really funny because when you play songs four billion times live and in rehearsals five nights a week, it's amazing after a period of time where you listen to it and go, what did I do there? So um, 
you know, there was, there was some of that for a while. And then I walk into the first rehearsal and it was very flattering because Mike Cutting says, man, you haven't missed a beat. And I said, well, you haven't, don't realize what it took to get back here. That's because he, he missed two beats while you missed one. <laughs> right? He's like, man, you sound like you did before. And I'm like, well, it, it took a minute to get back, but I'm here. So um, Stephen had been singing country music uh, during previously up until this point. So Stephen showed up and uh, we started rehearsals and it was, uh, um, I, don't, I don't even know how to frame it. Um, I think he struggled a little bit and uh, we went in and did that first show and he decided if he didn't want to do that and uh, we got another singer to finish the other three shows we played a festival in Wilmar Minnesota and um, a couple other shows locally and one out in the valley in Los Angeles Paladinos and we didn't want to want to stay down in uh, Lake Elsinore area and then that was it um, you know there wasn't any talk of doing another record I think we kind of kicked it around a little bit at that time but we were kind of spread all over the map you know and I think Michael was in uh, living in Florida. I and Andy was in Florida or Arizona. I, I was out here, so you know it was just kind of difficult to, you know, bring that back, you know, full time. So uh, before I, I wanted to, we're kind of cl- you know wrapping things up here because there wasn't really any activity for the band, you know, since then, right? Um, but one of the things I did want to ask you about was if we could go way back to the first album, um, and I wanted to talk about the song "See No Evil." This right now, for people that don't know, it's a song that's, I guess, it's about something that's a hot button issue in this current day and age, of course. Um, I mean, without kind of, you know, getting into the whole moral, political thing, uh, the song, the topic of the song is about abortion. Um, But was this something that you guys either got, like, some controversy generated at the time or even years after because of that song? Not years after, but... We're in pre-production, and as I said, I wrote the main hook, you know, for that song, and I had a vision for that song. And Steve, while we were working all day, would go out in the fields in Fresno at the, on the ranch we were on and write lyrics and, and try to work up some melody ideas. He had a little cassette player, and he would record some of the ideas, and he'd go out and try to work up lyrics and melody. So he comes back with the lyrics for Ceno Evil. I lost my mind. I'm like, no. And so it was one of those moments, and there's several, where it was a Jamie intervention where I get the circle around me and I'm in the chair and people are telling me why. <laughs> it's a good idea. You know, when you really look at that song, because I'm going to say this, as, as a young man, um, we either knew somebody that had an abortion or, you know, uh, I, I just think it's such a controversial issue, even then, that, that I didn't think it was a good idea. I really didn't. But the way the song was written was not coming from a place of condemnation. Right. And when it, when, when it was explained to me as Steve was reading the lyrics, it was from an unborn child's point of view. So it puts a whole other dynamic and level on the issue. It's not, it, it's not saying it's right or wrong, but hey, this is what if an unborn child could speak out? Right. And the video, the video is exactly about that. So the kid in the video, as you see walking around, he's seeing kids playing in the park and, you know, he's, he's looking at a book, mm-hmm. you know, a, a children's book and throws it down on the ground and, and walks away. And, you know, at the end of the video, he kind of fades away as he's walking off and he's seeing the world he never got to see. Right. right. He never had an opportunity to be part of. Yeah. And I, I think it was pretty powerful, but. Yes, it was very controversial. In fact, our, our video aired on MTV, and I heard it got pulled because of that. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's true, but uh, all of a sudden it was you know being aired at like 2 in the morning, and then it eventually got pulled. So, yeah, um, it, yeah it, it, was it a good idea? Was it a bad idea? I can't say, but like I said earlier, I think things happen for a reason, and I think that song was written that way because it was supposed to. No, I mean, Even it's, though, yeah, it's a very, very, like you mentioned, a very powerful, and it's very thought-provoking, um, and just like you say, from the, the way it was written, from the point of view. Yes, and Steve had a knack for that. Steve was a very good lyricist, you know, even like the song Lies and, um, you know, See No Evil, and um, he just, he had a way, um, even like Last Train, you know, using the whole, you know, 
analogy of, you know, do you have your ticket? Are you going to be on mm. the train? You know, and, yeah. and it's, it's, it's not an overt statement, but it's, it's, it's a story and it kind of paints a picture and you get to think about what it's talking about, you know, right. it makes you kind of think. So, and that's kind of what see no evil do. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I think it is what it was supposed to be, even though I was very against it when I first heard what it was about. And yeah. Like I said, I lost, I lost my mind. I'm like, are you guys crazy? Yeah. And uh, you know, when you write the music and the guitar parts and you have an idea, um, you know, cause it's a, it's kind of, it's a rocking kind of hooky song. It's got a cool rhythmic um, drive to it. And then you're, you're going to kill it with that. You're kidding mm. me. Right. Yeah. And then, and then I was completely wrong. Clearly because it, <laughs> it, it turned out the way it was supposed to turn out. It's, it's, it's a great it's a, song. Yeah. I mean, the album wouldn't have been complete without that song. I mean, if you change the lyrics around, I guess, and the left the music, it might've been, but it was, I thought one of the standout tracks on the album. I appreciate that. So let's, uh, let's move up to, uh, to the current day, uh, 2022. Uh, are you doing anything musically, uh, that you care to talk about or share? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I get asked a lot why, you know, am I in a band or, and, you know, I've got friends that are playing like, you know, just cover tunes and stuff. And, and I just, I, it's really a struggle for me because when you go see some of these bands and everybody's looking at their iPhones and, or their phones and these guys are up there trying to put their heart out and nobody really cares because your background music hit a bar, you know, it's like, that's not what I wanted to do, but um, yeah, I'm doing a, a premiere project, um, a showcase project with a couple cats that, um, and it, it hasn't been released yet, so I don't want to give too much, but um, I, I'm currently doing some home recording. I've got a couple of songs in the can. And um, I can say that um, uh, we're going to be working with David Safiro. It's, it's not a Christian band. Um, in fact, we're hammering out the final pieces of figuring out the name of the band. Um, and then we'll start a Kickstarter fund to, uh, you know, get it out on social media to, to help fund the project. But um, I was actually, we were supposed to be in Nashville in, last month. Uh, the 19th for uh, a couple weeks to start pre-production and hammer out like four songs. And um, then, you know, of course, you know, you guys heard about Michael Bloodgood passing away. So um, there, there was some issues with our singer that's in Argentina that couldn't make it. And that was the driving force by postponing it. And then, you know, Michael passed away and uh, you know, so it, it wasn't supposed to happen at that time. So now it's giving us some time to really, uh, kind of fine tune the ideas and he's got a one song already that he's previously recorded we're going to work through um we're, we're talking david was thinking about maybe doing one of his songs the other side and redoing it kind of updating that song and we're kicking that idea around so um yeah to answer your question yes and i'm hoping we get something out we wanted to get something out before the end of the year and i don't think that's going to happen at this point but um Next year, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll have something something available, whether it's an EP or a full length album. If the Kickstarter fund um, does what we hope it will, then it'll it'll give us you know enough resources to, to record an entire album. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. Will it will it be in the melodic uh, hard rock vein? Okay, so great question, and um, you know people ask me, so what's it going to be? And it's it's hard to explain. So Don't the break one, my heart. The, <laughs> no, no, no. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little teaser, right? So Andy's very much into Pink Floyd and I think I just gave something away. So, uh, <laughs> that's funny. So the prog rock thing, um, and the singer is, uh, you know, he does some Genesis cover stuff in, in, in Argentina and he's very well known down there. So it's going to have some of that cool ethereal vibe, but it's going to be rocking as well. And so the one piece that I've already written and sent to David to kind of put you at ease a little bit, David said, okay, that's Jamie all over it. So if, if you, if you like see no evil stranger type stuff, um, it's, it's hard to not write just to writing. And so it's going to have some, some guitars in that vein. So if you like that kind of stuff, um, what I've already written guitar wise, uh, and it's got a pretty good, cool breakdown in the in the middle of it um so we want to do something that's rocking has some depth um some maturity but i do not want to and i already talked 
you know, I already said it. So Andy and I have talked and I, I told Andy, I said, I do not want to do anything that's going to be putting people to sleep. And Andy, we agree. It's not coming out unless it's really good. And we had our, we have our standards set pretty high. So, um, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be good. It won't be Holy Soldier, obviously, but it's going to be, uh, we won't let it out unless it's really good. Well, I love seventies Pink Floyd. So that's, that, that doesn't. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. So throw in, throw in, uh, see no evil and Pink Floyd. And there you go. That's what I throw in uh, animals and, uh, see no evil. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite album by Pink Floyd. I saw them on that. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a good album. Well, looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, for sure. Is there, Um, uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Is there anywhere that people can keep uh, keep updated on the progress of it? Yeah, actually. Um, well, Andy Robbins. Page, I don't have an artist page yet, and I get a lot of requests on Facebook, and and um, it's my personal page. So I have to build an artist page, and then um, you know I'll put it out on that. Andy's going to put it out on his his page on Facebook, and then the Holy Soldier page. Um, believe it or not, but it'll it'll be on that as well. So we'll make sure it's it's on on. Uh, every format we can get it out when we get the news out okay great so um tom anything else that you... uh, no i'm good we're gonna wrap good? up but after we do the wrap up stay on the phone i want to talk to you for three minutes <laughs> off the off the air Absolutely. i want to tell you a funny story um well everybody <laughs> hey uh, jamie we appreciate you uh bringing us down memory lane with uh, holy soldier and right up to today with everything that's going on with you we'll uh, we'll definitely keep an eye out for the new project and uh thanks for uh joining us here on the jersey guys podcast tonight Thanks, guys. My pleasure. All right. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So, hey, everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys podcast, and uh, we just talked with uh, Jamie Kramer from uh, Holy Soldier. Uh, how do you think that one went, Tom? I think it went really good. He was a terrific guest. Um, 
one of my more favorite people to talk to since we've been doing this. It was a real pleasure. Uh, this was a band that I got into uh, from the inception. Um, was always very much into these first two albums, uh, uh, Stephen Patrick's solo album. And I even kind of liked the uh, the grunge album that they did uh, that Jamie actually was not part of. But um, this was another band that I could cross off the list that I wanted to get a key member on uh, for a while and uh, discuss everything about them. And I think uh, we covered just about everything. So, yeah. yes, I was very, very happy with it. Yeah, no, I thought he was a great guy, good good person to talk to, a couple cool little stories there. Uh, and I, I wasn't the uh, the biggest Holy Soldier fan, you know, back in the day. Uh, just wasn't super aware of the band, but, you know, knowing them now and, and having the albums uh, like I do and, and, and enjoying them. So, yeah, it was good to talk to him and, uh, like I said, an original member and uh, get a little bit of that background from the, the band from their early days uh, through the album. So, yeah, I thought it was a good conversation. Yes, excellent. So, um, all right, we, uh, we got another uh, episode coming to you guys soon, so look out for that, and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this one.